Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we listen to the music from the 1976 film, The Missouri Breaks. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. So, faithful listeners, you know that I have not been shy about trashing some of the films that I have discussed on this podcast. And that is definitely not going to stop in this episode. I'm just going to say it right now. The Missouri Breaks is a very bad film. It is not worth the money you could spend to buy it on eBay, stream it online, or possibly find at a video store. Stay far, far away from this movie. Now, with that said, I recognize that John Williams composed some great musical moments for the film, but as a whole, it falls in line with the other scores that he wrote in 1976. Decent, but ultimately forgettable. The Missouri Breaks was a big deal when it was released in May 1976. The public was likely salivating overseeing Oscar-winning actors Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson go head-to-head in a Western film. At the time, the two were at the top of the pyramid in Hollywood. Brando famously refused an Oscar for The Godfather, and just two months before the film's release, Nicholson won his Best Actor Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Plus, the two were best friends and probably had been looking for a film to work on together. This should not have been that film. If you know anything about Marlon Brando, you probably know the stories about his out-there behavior on movie sets and his unconventional approach to acting, particularly needing cue cards off-screen for him to read. If you really want to see the Missouri Breaks, you'll see this type of Brando acting in full display. There's none of the great stuff you saw in The Godfather or A Streetcar Named Desire or On the Waterfront. One of the things Brando did was try on about four different accents throughout the film, neither of them really suited for his character, a bounty hunter of sorts named Lee Clayton. He also decides to wear a dress in the movie, and also has this backstory of being an avid bird watcher. All the ludicrous acting choices he makes took me out of the movie and really made me uncomfortable. As for Jack Nicholson, he does okay in this movie, but it's clear he doesn't belong in a western. He can't really find the accent that goes along with cowboy rustlers, and all you get is that famous Jack Nicholson drawl. He plays a horse rustler named Tom Logan who wants to get revenge on the man who killed his friend. So, he decides to buy the land next to his enemy and sell that man's horses after stealing them. Yep, that's pretty much the plot of the movie. Arthur Penn is the director, and he was known for the popular films Bonnie and Clyde and The Miracle Worker. The story goes that instead of trying to rein in Brando and get him to portray the character as written in the script, Penn just let Brando do what he wanted. And I'm surprised Penn kept a lot of those quirks in the film during the editing process. I really wanted to turn off the movie about 30 minutes in, and I wonder how John Williams was able to keep a level head and stick with the entire screening of the film with Penn. This wasn't like The Cowboys, the best western he has scored, or like any other movie he had done in his 17-year career as a film composer. In the case of some of the other bad movies he worked on, at least those films had actors who weren't well-known or were just starting in the business. This one had two of the last three Best Actor Oscar winners, 
and Williams probably thought it would be a very dramatic film with wonderful scenes to put to music. Plus, and this is a big thing, I'm not sure how Williams came to be involved with the film. The Missouri Breaks was a United Artists film, and Williams hadn't worked with that studio since The Long Goodbye three years earlier. The only connection I could figure out is that Elliot Kastner, who produced The Missouri Breaks, was the executive producer of The Long Goodbye. And after the success of Jaws the year before, Kastner certainly wanted to have Williams on The Missouri Breaks. And when Williams won the Oscar for Jaws a month after he finished recording the score to Missouri Breaks, Kastner now had two winners from that year's Oscar ceremony involved with the film. Williams has always taken a chance on the film projects he works on, and usually that's without any regard to the potential box office. And you can't help but think that he saw a great compositional challenge with the Missouri Breaks and accept it. Williams saw the weirdness in the film, particularly with Brando's character, and he went with it. We get a creepy theme for Lee Clayton, and I'll highlight that shortly. And there's a love theme too, though not really the kind we've been hearing through this point in his career. What really stands out in the film is the lack of a traditional orchestra. The recording sessions, which took place in late February and early March of 1976, had just a little more than a dozen musicians playing. You won't hear a lot of strings in the film, but rather a solo harmonica and lots of guitar. And not just the acoustic guitar, but also a bass guitar that seemed extremely out of place. But not in a bad way. You notice it and move on. What has really surprised me in my research of this film and the score is no one compares this movie to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Those two films are nothing alike in terms of plot, scope, and size, with Butch Cassidy winning on all fronts. But both movies have two superstars as headliners, and they share a way too cute scene between the love interests. As for the scores themselves, they both put in a pop flavor despite the out-of-place feel. Burt Bacharach did a good job restraining his pop music sensibilities for his Oscar-winning score. John Williams, I believe, was told to go a little bit further and show no restraint. And that's what I think he did, and it doesn't really work in the way he might have imagined. The harmonica and guitars make themselves known in the opening credits, when all we see are three men on horses far off in a field. The music right at the beginning feels right at home in the 1970s, not in a western set sometime before the invention of electricity.
So Williams is shaking up our expectations before one word has been spoken, especially with that bass guitar. The harmonica and guitar accompaniment aren't new to the Williams canon, of course. It helped him get an Oscar nomination for the Reavers seven years earlier, and it's put to good use again here. I was surprised that Williams didn't call on his good friend Toots Thielmans to perform the harmonica for the Missouri Breaks. There are some pretty nice harmonica passages that could have soared even further with Toots' touch, in the same way he did for Cinderella Liberty and the Sugarland Express. So, speaking of shaking up our expectations, the film starts off with a dramatic hanging of Tom's friend, then almost instantly lightens up in a scene when Tom hijacks the caboose of a train to steal the money. It's really the music that made me feel like the Missouri Breaks here was going to be a comedy, though the acting in the scene is supposedly also being played for laughs, as the hijack caboose stops on the tracks right over a river canyon, leaving Tom hanging on the caboose. This is only 20 minutes into the film, but there hasn't really been thematic material introduced. Nothing substantial for Tom, which is an odd choice for William since I'm sure he would have wanted to write a nice theme for Jack Nicholson, but he'll get to do that in 1987. The music you heard in the train robbery scene is not going to really appear anymore in the film, though the tone of that music remains when Tom and his entourage begin to set up their ranch. There is a lot of slapstick on screen but Williams remarkably holds back just a bit to keep the music from going into cartoon territory. 
This is why the smaller ensembles for the recording sessions was a good idea. If Williams decided to use a large orchestra, he might have put in some piccolos and clarinets to play during some of the cartoonish moments. So I just want to go off on a bit of a tangent about the small ensemble he used for the score. With Brando and Nicholson earning a combined 2.5 million salary just for acting in the movie, with a cut of the profits later, I wonder if that took away from the music budget in the film, and John Williams was told he couldn't use a big orchestra. Also, the score was recorded in New York City, the first time he'd record film music there. It's my understanding that many of the musicians who were able to play the instruments Williams wanted were based on the East Coast, which necessitated the New York recording. So let's get back to the movie, particularly to the moment when Marlon Brando enters the picture. The movie takes a sharp turn emotionally as the intentionally comedic scenes go away, but I still snickered at some of Brando's line readings. Williams does his best to make us hate Lee Clayton and his quest to kill Tom Logan and his men, with a theme that relies on the bass harmonica to set the tone, accompanied by a haughty harpsichord. One of the Williams hallmarks is writing love themes that go so well with the budding romance that you feel it in the music. I think the maestro wrote a nice melody for the love theme between Tom and Jane, but this is where a large orchestra would have worked because, as it is, it's not performed in the right instruments. Harmonica and guitar just don't work, as you will hear. Thank you. 
So as I said, this is the one point in the score when the strings and woodwinds were sadly missed. They would have really brought out the beauty in this score, and especially that love theme, so much better. And what's worse about this scene is that I couldn't stop thinking about the famous bicycle riding scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which featured an Oscar-winning song. I doubt there was ever a discussion of a song going into the Missouri breaks, but Williams certainly tried to put in something lyrical for the scene, and he probably got a little inspiration for it. As you see in the scene, they don't they aren't riding a bicycle together, but Jane decides to turn around on the horse the two are riding together, and it kind of makes it a little cuter than just the standard boy and girl ride on a horse. So Tom is left to tend to the ranch in Montana while his crew crosses the border to Canada in order to steal some horses. The men do manage to lead the horses away, but they are soon ambushed in a canyon by the Canadian police. This is one of the few action scenes to get music in the film, and it's hard to make it out in the film because of the sound of gunshots and horse hooves that dominate the sound mix. It wasn't until I heard the music for the scene away from the film that I even knew there was a pretty good piano accompaniment in the cue. Again, it's nice music, but it should have been used in a scene where it's not drowned out. The ambush creates so much mayhem that the men don't hold on to the horses, and one of the men breaks away to escape the police. That's Todd, played by Randy Quaid. He feels like he's being followed, and he is, but not by the Canadian Mounted Police. It's Lee Clayton tracking him, and this is the best musical moment in the film. Those of you who are familiar with Williams' work on images four years earlier will recognize this right away.
I love the atonal percussion to highlight the tension in this scene, from the drums to piano and even that electric harpsichord. I wonder how difficult it is to write music that lacks tonal structure. For someone like John Williams, it might be tough to manage the structure, but easy to color in the lines with the notes. One of the last true bits of underscore comes when Tom and his gang decide to steal their neighbor's horses since the Canadian robbery didn't go well. Williams gives us a nice melody on the guitar that I wish were developed into a theme for the film instead of being a one-off musical moment. Imagine Williams dipping back into the well from the Cowboys to compose this two-minute piece of music while also throwing in a bit of his jazz sensibilities. is watching this thievery take place from afar, and his theme comes up as we see him plan his next move. Then the guitar melody comes back, slower and more methodical as it's played on the piano. That's the second best musical moment of the film. I really like the main melody there so much that it tears me up that Williams didn't recognize its simplicity and elegance enough to create a main theme around it. And that's what really sinks this score to the Missouri Breaks. There's no cohesiveness to it with the main theme to keep the film grounded. As it is, it's a nice experiment in music composition in several styles, which Williams did many times in his comedy scores from the 60s. I think this is the last time Williams tries to blend two very opposite music genres into one score based on the outcome of this film. And it's also his last Western. The Missouri Breaks made just $14 million. That's a drop in the bucket considering the money that Brando and Nicholson should have brought in on their names alone. But the critics really trashed the film, and only the diehard Brando and Nicholson fans and maybe even those curious to see why Brando wore a dress, bought tickets to see the film. It's now become a cult favorite, but 
I wasn't really able to find many redeeming qualities. Once Williams was done with the Missouri Breaks in March 1976, he had pretty much the entire summer off. His next project, the 1977 movie Black Sunday, was going to be ready for him to record the score in August 1976, which gave him a couple of months away from film scoring. That was the perfect time for him to complete his violin concerto, which he started in 1974 as a tribute to his late wife, Barbara Ruick. It was Ruick who commissioned the piece for her husband, and her death was unfortunately the impetus for him to begin writing it. Between the responsibilities of his film score work and raising three teenage children as a single parent, Williams wasn't able to devote all of his time to the concerto in 1974. He didn't finish it until 1976, and when he was done, he put it away. Perhaps Williams was still reeling from the negative opinions of his only symphony, which was performed in 1968, but he didn't feel the rush to feel that this concerto had to be heard publicly. The Violin Concerto got its debut in January 1981 in St. Louis, the same time that his first concerto, written in 1969, got its debut. Leonard Slatkin was the conductor, with Mark Peskinoff serving as the soloist for the violin. You can really hear the emotion flowing from the strings. It's heartbreaking, even when you don't know the story behind it. And I don't know how many times the concerto was performed, but it did get a big commercial release in 2001 as part of the Tree Songs album Williams put out. I'll discuss that Tree Songs composition when we get to that point in this journey through John Williams' career. So let's end it there for this episode of The Baton. Next up is the war movie Midway, featuring a score that Williams composed in 1975, but didn't get to theaters until summer 1976. I have a personal connection to that famous piece of music from that film, and I'm excited to tell you about it in the next episode. So until then, the baton is down. Mm -hmm.